Chapter eighty two of The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. A LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter eighty two. Absorbed in grief, and unable to converse, though endeavouring to listen to the baronet, Juliet was only drawn from her melancholy reverie by the rattling of the carriage upon a pavement, as it passed, through a spacious gate, into the courtyard of a magnificent country seat. She demanded what this meant. Where better, he demanded in return, could she while away the interval of waiting, than in viewing the finest works of art, displayed in a temple consecrated to their service. This was a scheme to force back all her consideration. In hearing him pronounce the word Wilton, she had merely thought of the town, not of the mansion of the Earl of Pembroke, which she now positively refused entering, earnestly representing the necessity, as well as propriety, in a situation so perilous, of the most entire obscurity. He assured her that she would be less liable to observation in a repository of the Beaux-Arts at the villa of a nobleman, than by waiting in a post-chaise before the door of an inn, as he must indispensably change horses, and grant a little repose to his old groom, who had been out with him all day. This she could not dispute, convinced herself that the greatest danger lay in being recognized or remarked within the precincts of an inn. Nevertheless, how enter into such a mansion in a garb so unfit for admission? She besought him to ask leave that she might remain in some empty apartment, as an humble dependent, while he viewed the house. Extremely pleased by an idea so consonant to his fantastic taste, he answered her aloud in alighting. "'Yes, yes, Mrs. Betty, if you wish to see the rooms, that you may give an account of all the pretty images to my little ones, there can be no objection.' She descended from the chaise, meaning to remonstrate upon this misconstruction of her request, but, not allowing her the opportunity, he gaily represented, to the person who showed him the mansion, that he was convoying a young nursery-maid, the daughter of a worthy old tenant, to his grandchildren and that she had a fancy to see all the finery, that she might make out some pretty stories, to tell the little dears, when she wanted to put them to sleep. Juliet, whose deep distress made her as little desire to see as to be seen, repeated that she wished to sit still in some spare room. He walked on, pretending not to hear her, addressing himself to his cicerone, whom he kept at his side, and therefore as there was no female in view, to whom she could apply, she was compelled to follow. Not as Juliet she followed, Juliet whose soul was delightedly awake to tender strokes of art, whether in painting, music, or poetry, who never saw excellence without emotion, and whose skill and taste would have heightened their pleasure into rapture, her approbation into enthusiasm, in viewing the delicious assemblage of painting, statuary, antiques, natural curiosities, and artificial rarities of Wilton. Not as Juliet she followed, but as one to whom everything was indifferent, whose discernment was gone, 
whose eyes were dimmed, whose powers of perception were asleep, and whose spirit of enjoyment was annihilated. Figures of the noblest sculpture, busts of historical interest, alto and basso relievos of antique elegance, marbles, alabasters, spars, and lavers of all colors and in all forms, pictures glowing into life, and statues appearing to command their beholders. All that, at another period, would have made her forget everything but themselves, now vainly solicited a moment of her attention. It was by no means the fault of the baronet that this nearly morbid insensibility was not conquered by the revivifying objects which surrounded her. He suffered her not to pass an Escalapius without demanding a prescription for her health, a Mercury without supplicating an ordinance for her spirits, a Minerva without claiming an exhortation to courage, nor a Venus without pointing out that perpetual beauty beams but through perpetual smiles, couching every phrase under emblematical recommendations of story subjects for the nursery. When the guide stood somewhat aloof, "'What say you now?' he exultingly whispered, "'to my famous little friends. Did they ever devise a more ingenious gamble? From your slave, by a mere wave of their wand, they have transformed me into your master. Ah, wicked siren!' A dimple of yours demolishes all their work, and again totters me down to your feet. Nevertheless, even in this nearly torpid state, accident having raised her eyes to Van Dyck's children of Charles I, the extraordinary attraction of that fascinating picture was exciting, unconsciously, some pleasure, when the sound of a carriage announcing a party to see the house, she petitioned Sir Jasper to avoid if possible, being known. All compliance with whatever she could wish, the baronet promised to nail his eyes to the lowest picture in the room, should they be joined by any stragglers, and then, relinquishing all further examination, he begged permission to wait for his horses, in an apartment which is presided by a noble picture of Salvatore Rosa, to which, never discouraged, he strove to call the attention of Juliet. Nothing could more aptly harmonize, not only with his enthusiastic eulogiums, but with his quaint fancy, than that exquisite effusion of the painter's imagination. "'Where, surely,' said the rapturous baronet, "'his pencil has been guided, if not impelled in every stroke by my dear little cronies the fairies, and that variety of vivifying objects.' That rich yet elegant scenery of airy gaiety and ideal felicity is palpably a representation of fairyland itself. Is it thither my dear little friends will some day convey me? And shall I be metamorphosed into one of those youthful swains that are twining their garlands with such bewitching grace? And shall I myself elect the fair one around whom I shall entwine mine? This harangue was interrupted by the appearance of a newly arrived party. But vainly Sir Jasper kept his word, in reclining upon his crutches, till he was nearly prostrate upon the ground. He was immediately challenged by a lady, and that lady was Mrs. Ireton. Juliet, inexpressibly shocked, hastily glided from the room, striving to cover her face with her luxuriously curling hair. 
she rambled about the mansion, till she met with a chambermaid, from whom she entreated permission to wait in some private apartment, till the carriage to which she belonged should be ready. The maid, obligingly, took her to a small room, and Juliet, taught by her cruel confusion at the sight of Mrs. Ireton, the censure, if not slander, to which travelling alone with a man, however old, might make her liable, determined, at whatever hazard, to hang henceforth solely upon herself. She resolved, therefore, to beg the assistance of this maidservant, to direct her to some safe rural lodging. But how great was her consternation, when, requiring now her purse, she suddenly missed, what in her late misery she had neither guarded nor thought of, her packet and her work-bag. Every pecuniary resource was now sunk at a blow. Even the deposit which she had held as sacred of Harley was lost. At what period of her disturbances this misfortune had happened, she had no knowledge. Nor whether her property had been dropped in her distress, or purloined, or simply left at the inn, the consequence, every way, was equally dreadful. And but for Sir Jasper, whom all sense of propriety had told her, the moment before, to shun, yet to whom now she became tied by absolute necessity, her difficulties at this conjuncture would have been nearly distracting. When the carriage was returned with fresh horses, Sir Jasper found her in a situation of augmented dismay, that filled him with concern, though he also saw that it was tempered by a grateful softness to himself, that he thought more than ever bewitching. He assured her that Mrs. Ireton, whom he had adroitly shaken off, had not perceived her. But the moment that they were reseated in the chaise, she communicated to him, with the most painful suffering, the new and terrible stroke by which she was oppressed. Viewing this as a mere pecuniary embarrassment, the joy of becoming again useful, if not necessary to her, sparkled in his eyes with almost youthful vivacity, though he engaged to send his valet immediately to the inn, to make inquiries and offer rewards for recovering the strayed goods. This second loss of her purse, she suffered Sir Jasper, without any attempt at justification, to call an active epigram upon modern female drapery, which prefers continual inconvenience, innumerable privations, and the most distressing untidiness, to the antique habit of modesty and good housewifery, which, erst, left the public display of the human figure to the statuary, deeming that to support the female character was more essential than to exhibit the female form. The second loss, also, by carrying back her first reflections to the first, brought to her mind several circumstances, which cast a new light upon that origin of the various misfortunes and adventures which had followed her arrival. And all her recollections, now she knew the rapacity and worthlessness of the pilot, pointed out to her that she had probably been robbed, at the moment when, impulsively, she was pouring forth, upon her knees, her thanks for her deliverance. Her work-bag, which, upon that occasion, she had deposited upon her seat, she remembered, though she had then attributed it to his vigilance and care, 
seeing in his hands when she arose. Arrived at the farmhouse, they found themselves expected by the farmer and his wife, who paid the utmost respect to Sir Jasper, but who saw, with an air of evidently suspicious surprise, the respect which he himself paid to Mrs. Betty, the nursemaid, whose beauty, with her rustic attire, and disordered hair, would have made them instantly conclude her to be a lost young creature, had not the decency of her look, the dignity of her manner, and the grief visible in her countenance, spoken irresistibly in favour of her innocence. They spoke not, however, in favour of that of Sir Jasper, whose old character of gallantry was well known to them, and induced their belief that he was inveigling this young woman from her friends for her moral destruction. They accommodated her, nevertheless, for the night, but, whatever might be their pity, determined, should the baronet visit her the next day, to invent some other occupation for their spare bedroom. Unenviable was that night, as passed by their lodger, however acceptable to her was any asylum. She spent it in continual alarm, now shaking with the terror of pursuit, now affrighted with the prospect of being penniless, now shocked to find herself cast completely into the power of a man, who, however aged, was her professed admirer, and now distracted by varying resolutions upon the measures which she ought immediately to take. And when, for a few minutes, her eyes, from extreme fatigue, insensibly closed, her dreams, short and horrible, renewed the dreadful event of the preceding day. Again she saw herself pursued, again she felt herself seized, and she blessed the piercing streaks with which she awoke, though they brought to her but the transient relief that she was safe for the passing moment. End of chapter 82 Recording by Roxana Nazari